Today on the University Podcast, what day of the week is it, Keith? Philosophy Friday. I feel like LeBron James saying taco too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. So, Keith, uh, you, you were previously hiding out in a undisclosed location. Now, can you tell us where you are at? Since, since you brought up LeBron James, I just, I just have to ask. Yeah, I'm in Los Angeles. With, I follow LeBron around. So, I was in uh, Ohio for a period uh, growing up. And now I'm out in Los Angeles because he's out here. So I am in uh, Los Angeles, California. And yeah, just kind of laying low here. And I'll probably start hitting the road here in the next few days, depending on uh, depending on how welcoming people are to visitors who might have the Rona. And so I don't want <laughs> I don't want there to be some sort of geo-tracking on me and they see cases of uh, the coronavirus spreading across the country uh, with its hotbed in L.A. and from wherever I have visited. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, so are you a Lakers or Clippers guy, or are you a Cavs guy? What, what, who do you rep? Uh, well, I guess a, a defect, I was a, a default Cavs fan growing up outside of Cleveland. And then, I, then Cleveland is, they were more of a LeBron fan than probably a Cavs fan. It, it's Browns, Indians, and a distant Cavs. So uh, I'm a Browns fan, Indians fan, then a distant Cavs. And with LeBron there, we're all bigger Cavs fans. But now that he left, I feel like the Cavs have returned to their third-tier position in Cleveland. Um, so ultimately, I'd probably be a Knicks fan. If it really boiled down to it, I was pulled for somebody, oh, it was the Knicks. And so I like the Knicks. I like the Knicks. They're awful. But in the 90s, they had some good teams like Charles Oakley, and they're just kind of like beat up. You know what I mean? They're kind of uh, Xavier McDaniel and stuff like that and Patrick Ewing and – so yeah. uh, I enjoyed the Knicks and John Starks. Uh, I can't believe they never got a title in those days, but I, I enjoyed the uh, '90s Knicks. The push came to shove. Latrell Sprewell and all those guys. I would, uh, I would go Knicks, but I was uh, most recently the Cavs. I was following LeBron. Yeah, I mean they really fumbled the ball. Uh, you know, to change change the sport metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Ke- Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving. I mean, all, they had all this potential setup because they're they're the bigger brand. But now yeah. Brooklyn is is the cool. I mean, they're actually a, a decent team to watch. So, kind of sad. Well, yeah, we, I mean, we're not here to talk about basketball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, real, 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 I think Isaiah Thomas may have been running them for a while, and he really ran them in the ground. The Dolans are awful owners, and so anyway, yeah, it's a debacle of brand, almost as bad as my Browns. So yeah, yeah. We're not right, let's, let's get into some uh, Mitch Stokes. Yeah, let's get into some Mitch Stokes. So we're we're reading. If you're just joining us, we're reading a shot of faith to the head by Dr. Mitch Stokes. He teaches uh, here at New, uh, in Moscow at New St. Andrews College. And we are in chapters six and seven this week. And one of the things we've been doing is uh, Keith has been bringing a kind of jargon word and we've been uh, trying to um, acclimate people to philosophy. And there's a lot of jargon when you start to get into the history of philosophy, different phases that it's been um, kind of that it's gone through. So Keith, what jargon word do you have for us today? Uh, This week we're using burden of proof. And uh, so the basic idea of the burden of proof, I'm actually stealing this from Wikipedia, but it says in a legal dispute, one party is initially presumed to be correct while the other side bears the burden of producing evidence persuasive enough to establish the truth of facts needed to satisfy all the, it goes on to say legal elements of a legal dispute. And so that kind of makes sense in a legal dispute. So if I accuse you of murder, it would make sense that I'd have to bring forth evidence to show that you're guilty where you get the presumption of innocence going into the, uh, the debate. So, but when, or going into the, the accusation of you being a murderer. 
But in a discussion of philosophy and metaphysics, in our American legal system, that's kind of called an asymmetrical burden of proof. So, so the, it's not a symmetrical burden of proof on both parties. One party bears the burden, the other does not bear the burden. But what and Mitch Stokes does this, I think, pretty well, even in the opening chapters, building in chapter seven, is showing that we actually have a symmetrical burden of proof between the atheist and the theist or the agnostic or whoever it is. We all have a responsibility to demonstrate our position to be true. And so the reason we want this word to kind of be in your head when you go have a discussion with an atheist or an agnostic or, um, and what's kind of funny is we don't think of it. If we go to sit down with Jehovah's witness, we think we both have the burden of proof to, uh, show our position, but somehow the atheist kind of gets the, uh, leg up that he gets to sit back on easy street, not demonstrate anything, but just kind of, uh, assume his position to be true. So the burden of proof is an important idea for us to have because we realize that once you realize it, you're going into most discussions with everybody assuming the onus is upon you to prove your position. But what we're seeking to do at the very least, initially at least, is to kind of get the ball in the middle of the field and saying, no, we both have the burden of proof when it comes to a metaphysical debate of what is the nature of reality. Everybody has a responsibility to say what that is. Yeah. And maybe I'll just add to this. One of the places where I think the burden of proof uh, kind of really impacts your theology is on the question of infant baptism. So uh, people, credo Baptists who think uh, you have to make a confession of faith to be baptized versus pedo Baptists who believe that uh, babies can be baptized based on their parents' confession of faith and their connection to the covenant. What it really comes down to in these debates is um, the burden of proof because we don't have a verse that says, thou shalt baptize thy infants. And it, there, we also don't have any prohibition against it. And so, paedo-baptism is one of these great, I think, examples of how you make a biblical argument. It, it um, gets into your presuppositions and assumptions about what even were the controversies of the first century. So, uh, I remember when I was sorting through these arguments, I think I read uh, Doug Wilson's To a Thousand Generations, and he was actually a credo-baptist as he wrote this book on pedo-baptism, and it eventually became um, kind of what persuaded, uh, I, I believe, the elder session and him at least to come to this position. And I found it very persuasive. And one of the points he made was, in the first century, the debate was not over whether you should baptize your babies. It was whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised. And that was what the big debate was. That's what Galatians and many of these discussions were about the Judaizers. It wasn't over about baptizing babies. It was whether Gentiles had to be circumcised to enter the new covenant. And that suddenly, if, if that is kind of your, your starting point, suddenly the burden of proof kind of shifts. And, and the question now becomes, are Christian children excluded from the covenant of grace? And, and now the burden of proof would be on the credo Baptist to say, yeah, if baptism is, is um, basically comparable to what circumcision is, then the, the Baptist has to prove that the Bible says, yes, children of believers are excluded from the covenant of, uh, uh, the covenant of grace, and therefore the burden of proof is on them to prove that. And so those are kind of, that's a whole paradigm shift when it comes to pedo-baptism, and it really affects the rest of your argumentation for what you're going to use as evidence or not. Yeah, and what's really interesting with that, even if you go to the Wikipedia and you, there, there are two. There's a legal understanding of the burden of proof and the philosophical understanding of the burden of proof. 
And one of the things, even in the philosophical one, that they want to uh, kind of work through is that even some of this is contingent, the burden of proof in a debate is going to be contingent on the norms of that society. And so if you think of the Pado baptist debate, in general, American evangelicalism is a predominantly Baptist culture. And so going into that, the Baptists kind of have the benefit of the doubt and be like, oh, well, of course that's right. It's just, just the air we breathe. You know what I mean? You guys are bringing in new air. You have to show that you're, but if you're in a, you know, say you're in a predominantly Catholic country, the, the uh, Baptists would have to come in and everybody's assumption would be that. So there is a cultural element to how we end up thinking through the burden of proof and where it lies. And I think that's the important thing with uh, when it gets into a discussion over theism and atheism, all that sort of stuff, is, is the philosophical discussion is that at root, we're arguing it's not cultural conventions, um, but it's actually, you know, there's a norm outside of us. And so that, that's where all the discussion lies. And so I think if, if you grasp the baptism discussion as Aaron laid it out, you can see how that plays out practically in the discussion with the atheists and theists. Yeah. One of the most helpful classes I, I took uh, which was just really through a iTunes U uh, Reform Theological Seminary Seminary has a bunch of their lectures up on iTunes U, and if you find advanced, I think it's like advanced biblical exegesis with Dr. Robert Kara. It is one of the best classes I think you could take on hermeneutics and and even something like philosophy because you're asking a question about why do you believe what you believe? How did you end up there? And he has this whole kind of spiel about, um, he, I forget what the exercise is, but he basically has everyone in the class trace their kind of theological development. And then he, he talks about the relationships in your family. So what was your dad? What was his dad? What was your mom? What, you know, what belief structure did they have? And you start to become more self-conscious about, you didn't come to the beliefs you hold now strictly through argument, evidence, and reason. In fact, very few of our current beliefs actually come that way. And I think that's one of the big takeaways that I've uh, appreciated from Mitch's book is that I think it, it's very realistic. It uh -huh. keeps it real about how people actually believe what they believe and why they believe what they believe. Just like how we talked last time about uh, a lot of atheists or agnostic are actually people who um, have been maybe sexually abused or want to have sex with their girlfriend. It's it so much of the time it's connected to this moral problem. All right, I feel guilty. I don't want to feel guilty. God doesn't exist. Okay, if I keep telling myself that, maybe I won't have to feel guilty. And it's really this ethical thing that we um, sometimes don't acknowledge because it's embarrassing, right? <laughs> yeah. We, we pro want to hide behind reason and show me evidence um, to, to deny God and suppress our, our guilt. Yep. And uh, it's funny you mentioned it because as I was reading these chapters, uh, my main takeaway was like, yeah, this is, this is just kind of the way it is. You know what I mean? Like, and he's not really laying out these great falls. He's just like, yeah, we just have prop. We just naturally have beliefs. Like we know our name, we know our parents, we know where we're from. And there's just a bunch of things that we just kind of know because we've been told it and we live it and we trust it and we walk it. And without getting too far afield, uh, the, the thing I think is interesting within that, uh, you can kind of see where certain strands of, uh, woke wokeness comes from is that oh well you're just you're you know you're just kind of embedded in these thinking you know what i mean and we kind of come from the outside and seek to deconstruct what you're currently embedded in and so you can kind of see like once you begin to see these things it's almost like unseeable now you know what i mean you, you see it take place all the time and where outside voices do come in and seek to 
undermine the, the current structures that are there in some regard and try to set them up with new ones. Um, but as I read chapter six and seven, six particularly, yeah, I was, I'm with you. My main takeaway was like, yeah, this is just very much how things take place. Yeah. So let's, let's get into chapter six. I'll kind of just outline what I thought was kind of the general summary or, uh, of his argument there. So he talks about the sensus divinitatis, which is this idea that it's kind of the fancy way of saying we all have an innate sense that God exists and it's been implanted in us by God. And he would point to Romans one as proving this. So um, this is, and then he, he goes on and would say, this kind of sensus divinitatis is a basic belief. And anytime in this book, you see him use the word basic belief, that is jargon for, uh, that's Plantinga's jargon for how a belief can be rational. And so I'll just kind of give you this definition of get, again for what a rational belief is, according to Plantinga and Stokes. He says, a belief is rational if it is formed by a properly functioning cognitive faculty operating in the appropriate environment. And so what um, chapter six does is says, all right, we have this properly functioning cognitive faculty this sensus divinitatis given to us by God, but Romans 1 says we suppress that truth. And so sin has corrupted our reason. So sin actually means we do not have a properly functioning cognitive faculty. And then he goes on and says regeneration repairs this basic belief in God. So Keith, um, anything you want to comment on that before I ask you a question? Uh, no, you know, it's like something we can maybe discuss and I don't really know how to say it. I just thought it was really fascinating was on page 53 when he gives us the Aquinas quote and he just says, uh, the, um, the results of having this sense in us is a mixture of many errors. Some people have believed that there is no other order of worldly things than the celestial bodies. And so they said that celestial bodies are gods. Other people pushed it further the very element and the things generated from them. Thinking that motion and the natural function which these elements have are not present in them as they affect, uh, um, as the effect of some other order, but that other things are ordered by them. And then Mitch's comment is, if this is right, then the census divinitatis, um, although widespread, doesn't generally produce belief in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, when you look at the world, and even he kind of points out that, you know, if you're looking at it from a majority standpoint, majority of the world down to this point has held to some belief in God. Now, it not, has not been the uh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, but the sense of the divine in them has driven people to belief. And, um, and I like that he kind of, going all the way back to Aquinas, lays out kind of how the malfunction uh, has given us basically many, many divinities um, in a way. So I, yeah. I, I like that section. So this is a question that I think I would want to ask Mitch and I'll, I'll kick it to you and you can tell me uh, if I'm maybe misunderstanding him. But um, on this definition of what constitutes a rational belief, properly functioning cognitive faculty operating in an appropriate environment, um, I was thinking about the people who take the kind of blind leaf of, of faith approach to Christianity where they, they actually do, um, let's say they're not regenerate but they believe in God. So, so they, we'd say they don't have a properly functioning cognitive faculty, but they believe in God. They might even say they believe in Jesus Christ. And so uh, the thing is that belief 
if I'm understanding him correctly, that belief is irrational because of how they got to it, but it's true. So you can believe a true thing irrationally um, if you are an unbeliever that's not born again. Um, And then this, and really that gets, I don't know if he would say I'm misunderstanding him or not, but that gets into the whole kind of Van Til thing with um, what kind of knowledge of God can any unbeliever have? What level of reason is retained um, from that noetic effects of the fall that would say, yeah, do you do unbelievers do anything rationally or is everything uh, on planting definition that they come to believe irrational though it could be true thoughts on that yeah i think they would say it can be rational i i, I don't know if i grasp fully your last comment there though that they what the unbeliever believes is true though they have not arrived at it rationally is that what you said or they have arrived at it rationally yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking if they do not have a properly functioning cognitive faculty because they're suppressing the sensus divinitatis, mm-hmm. if, if they don't have that, then, it, then a belief isn't rational. Um, y- yes, and I think, I think the difficulty in, in all of this is, uh, is I, there's a sense which I agree, but yeah, how do some of the outworkings of it Go so like I think we can all agree, and Van Til would agree. Um, there is definitely a sense in which uh, Joe atheist mathematics skills work. Um, anytime they do math, anytime we go to the grocery store and you give them five dollars and it's a three dollar thing, they get back two dollars, and everybody in there, no matter what level of intelligence they have, no matter what their cultural background is, and what the beliefs are, and uh, and we would all agree that it's a very rational belief. Now, if you push comes to shove to those people and ask them to give a rational justification of why numbers hold, maybe they couldn't. Uh, give one. Um, but I think the, I would want to say that the unbeliever can arrive. And I, I think that's where we even need to be careful on, on how the noetic effects of the fall work. And I, to be honest, I don't have a good answer um, is because there's still some sense in which the unbelievers is obviously working. You know what I mean? Um, uh, in principle, it might be distorted, but in another practical sense, it's, it's obviously working. And I, and I, and that's the place where I don't know how to navigate those waters well enough because I mean, you can listen to any unbeliever on a myriad of topics. You go to a, a doctor who is uh, an atheist, and his, you know, in one sense, we can say his cognitive faculties are not properly working because he's an atheist. But at the same time, uh, just because the guy's a believer, another guy's a believer doesn't mean I want him working on my kidneys or whatever it is, just because uh, his his faculties are properly working with respect to belief in God. So um, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I, I would wrestle through the aspect of exactly how we grasp the uh, properly working faculties. Yeah. So let me read. This is Acts uh, chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. This is Paul addressing um, uh, the men of Athens at the Areopagus. He says, and he made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Then here's the part I want to unpack that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for then he quotes in him, we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Okay. So um, this is one of those classic texts with dealing with kind of unbelievers and their knowledge of God. So uh, apparently 
so in scripture, it seems like light and knowledge is kind of this metaphor for knowledge, light. And he says, these people need to feel their way toward him and find him. So kind of the image you're given there is kind of like a, a, a blind man groping, but he, but he can seek God and find his way toward him. Um, and, and so I would want to say, here's one example of uh, what the knowledge of God looks like for someone un, uh, who's someone that's an unbeliever. It's distorted. They don't see clearly, but there's a way in which they could seek him and perhaps feel their way toward him. Uh, do you have some comments on that passage or this idea? Yeah, it's actually one of my favorite passages. Um, and I think in part, even what's going on, if you know, it's been years I've studied it, and so maybe some people have tried to debunk the, the history, and so there could be some debate here. But the basic idea of Paul going in there, if you remember, he's accused of introducing foreign gods to, uh, you know, when he's in basically the Areopagus, or he's in the marketplace, and, you know, these strange deities of the resurrection and the divinities that you're preaching, and then, then he's brought to Mars Hill. And so the context would be, imagine if I come up to Moscow next week, and I'm preaching Jesus, and this town, the city hall of uh, Moscow determines whether or not my God's allowed into the mix. You know what I mean? So they're basically the guardians of the gate. And so I would show up and I walk around Moscow and I say, Oh, this one here that's unknown. See, he's been here the whole time. I'm here to make this one known to you. So I'm not introducing someone new, someone totally foreign. And even your own poets say these things. And so I think much of what Paul's doing here is, is in a sense, like stepping into their narrative and their story of what's happening. And then at the end, he does flip the script on him. He says, Oh, and by the way, he's going to judge the world. You don't sit in judgment of him. He's going to judge the world in righteousness, and God's demonstrated this by raising a man from the dead. And so I think that's uh, much uh, of what our conversation is in taking place, because we, we are persuaded of the truth of Christianity, and that God, because, yeah, and every man does have this sense of the divine in them, that they're always doing something in their culture that's in contact with it. Um, they may not be fully aware of it. They may suppress it. It's going to be distorted. And years ago, I remember reading an R.J. Rushdoony article called the Society of Satan. And the opening paragraph, if you have, if you, you can Google it, the PDF is available online, uh, Rush Dooney, Society of Satan. And the opening paragraph there, he basically says that everybody lives in God's world. And because of that, nobody comes up with new categories of thought. They always just substitute God's categories for false ones. And so everybody has a theory of the atonement. Everybody has a theory of sovereignty. Everybody has a theory of justice. Uh, the question is, if it's not the truth of God, it's been stuffed with something else. And so a passage like this, I think that's in part what Paul's doing. And I also think it's one of the powers that we have in evangelizing. And, and once you have that, uh, you're actually free because you realize in many ways what you're listening for in the unbeliever is the place where you're calling them to repentance from. What is it they're looking for atonement? Where are they looking for justice? Where are they looking for these things? And so as Paul says here, you know, your own poets say, you know, in him we live and move and have our being. We are his own offspring. And we're able to have that point of contact uh, with them. So I, I think... I think a passage like this is worth having kind of memorized in a way in our own heads and what's going on here. And it kind of, I think summarizes almost in many ways, the way I look at almost every, not everyone, cause I don't want to reduce everybody to it, but almost every encounter I have on campus almost fits this narrative of what I'm looking for um, in my interactions with somebody. Yeah. So I want to go to this quote. Um, he says on page 58 on this side of the fall, genuine belief is always supernatural. 
Genuine belief is always supernatural. Um, and then he goes on, he says, given what we have said about the work of the Holy Spirit, we can rationally believe the Bible without needing an argument for its reliability. And uh, Keith, would you agree with that? And how would you flesh that out? Because my, my kind of initial impression of that is, yeah, I believe that's true, but it's just not very persuasive. Yeah, that's funny. As I read this, I was like, that's one of the things we need to talk about, this paragraph, because it, it just kind of floated out there. And there is, and I agree with them that there's a certain sense in which I believed in God, like, and he kind of lays out how we come to our belief in God in the Bible. Like, you know, August of 1993, I started following Jesus. Long before that, actually, I believed the Bible, like, and part of that was cultural. As an American growing up in the 80s and the 90s, I just believed the Bible is the word of God, you know what I mean? And uh, you put your hand on it, even if you went to court. So no matter what everybody was saying, it, was just, it just held authority. And I thought it was true. And it was well after that, that I think I could maybe, you know, justify, so to speak, or rationalize uh, why it is I believe what I believe about the uh, about it. Um, but I would agree. Uh, and so in reading that section, it was one of the places where I was like, oh, I'd be a good place to talk because I do feel like it, it was a lack of persuasion. And I do think even kind of going back to somewhat the burden of proof thing, in general, my, in my apologetic and listening to certain uh, things, I do think the development of why these books in the Bible are kind, is kind of the most difficult apologetic endeavor. Um, and so even if you're dealing with uh, a Catholic, dealing with why these books, why do you believe Third John's in the Bible? Why don't you believe the book of Enoch? Why, do you, why these books? Um, and years ago, in reading John Frame's A Doctrine of Scripture, um, he basically has to say we have to give up, and I don't have it before me, but he says we have to give up an inductive approach to this issue. And, um, and so you, it's, it's somewhat of an a priori commitment. Like we're just, yep, the Holy Spirit testifies with us, as the Westminster Confession kind of says, and so we're going with that. And so we don't necessarily have, outside the testimony of the Holy Spirit, an argument for that. And so I do think in many people's heads it's not going to be persuasive. Yeah. Uh, so I think... So this is where I, um, so I don't know that Stokes is necessarily, I don't want to say that Stokes is being not persuasive. I just think if you give them that art, if you give that argument to an unbeliever, they will find it to be unpersuasive. And I think he's actually going to address this later on. I think I'm in chapter like 10 or 11 now. So I'm kind of a little bit ahead, but this is actually the place where I really find that I am more in the Bonson precept camp. And I think I've seen Pastor Doug do this as well. So uh, when I'm interacting with an unbeliever, let's say we're talking about politics and I'm wanting to say, well, here's what the Bible says. And then, and then they just come back with, yeah, your Bible also says all these other things. I don't believe your Bible. <clears throat> and at that point, you kind of have a choice. Do you, a lot of Christians, I think, find themselves on their heels where they want to say, oh, crap, I don't know how to defend the Bible um, I don't know, maybe there are contradictions in it, or maybe they're going to throw one at me that I don't know how to untie. And this is where sometimes I like to just say up front, um, I just take it on faith that the Bible is the word of God. Mm -hmm. And this is my starting point. And so I, I like to just give that to them. And then, and then it kind of makes sense, everything else I'm going to say, it, it doesn't make sense if I don't take it on faith that the Bible is the word of God. And then if they were to ask me how, I, what I would say to them is, well, God actually makes me believe 
that the Bible is the word of God. It's, it's something from outside of me. And then I'd want to say, just like I am appealing to the Bible, I take it on faith. You also take something on faith. What, what is that? And this is where I would say I'm in the presuppositional camp where I'd want them to try to just tell me, yeah, if you're going to say it's your reason or you're going to say it's what your sense experience is, then I find precept to be a very useful tool to explaining to them, which really is what Stokes is doing here. He's proving that evidentialism is false. And so that's kind of what this whole book has done so far is try to say what you are claiming to stand on your pure reason box, Christians stand on scripture and what you're trying to throw at us, you would have to throw at yourself too. And your view can't hold it. Our view, as he says in chapter seven we have a uh, epistemic story. The Christian epistemic story actually gives an accounting for why we stand where we stand. So maybe we can get into chapter seven now. Um, and Keith, do you have any other thoughts on kind of my, my little precept rant there? Yeah, no, I would, I would agree, especially in the context of, um, yeah, it may not be persuasive, but even, even just rhetorically. So I guess as we were talking, I thought of two things. Where I'm on campus, I'm all often asking, and it's kind of helpful in postmodern context, is just ask students, place yourself in my shoes. You know I mean, just, I realize you disagree with me, you reject everything I'm saying, but at the very least, just place yourself in my shoes. And, and then I try to articulate, I think I can place myself in yours, you know what I mean? And, and then try to restate their position to their satisfaction. You're saying this, if I was in your shoes, I can see why you believe what you believe. But if you put yourself in my shoes, and then you begin to lay it out. Um, and so I do think that's helpful uh, in the context of especially strands of atheism, agnosticism. I do think it gets a little more hairy when you have someone else with a different text or even additional text to their scriptures and stuff like that. So why would the Catholic not include the apocryphal books or whatever it may be? So I think there are certain places where it's helpful. I think it also gets difficult uh, with other more expansive apologetics, you know what I mean? And, uh, and within that, it, it's also going to sound fideistic to other people that, that we just believe what we believe. And so, yeah, why do I accept these 27 books and not say 28 or 29 and stuff like that? Or if we were to find Paul's second Corinthians, would we believe that book? You know what I mean? Well, no, why not? And so those are well, sort of things. Second that, Corinthians is in there, but third, oh, third, third Corinthians, maybe third, not. Third, first and third, maybe. Is it first and third that's missing? Yeah. Yeah. There, there's all sorts of theories about how many Corinthian letters were circulating, but <laughs> I, I was, I was thinking it was the second and the fourth that was missing, but maybe it's the uh, first and the third or something like that. Yeah. So, but yeah. So anyway, so, so anyway, I think it gets difficult at places, but uh, yeah, I agree. But within that, uh, if you place yourself in the Christian story, and even as Stokes is laying out here, the belief in the Bible simply isn't irrational. It might be difficult to justify the particulars but there's a really good book by Meredith Pine called The Structure of Biblical Authority. And he basically lays out that the very nature of a covenant includes covenant documents. So it's not irrational that a covenant-making God would have covenant documents establishing that covenant. And once that God speaks, it's reasonable. If you're stepping in our shoes, it's very reasonable that he speaks with authority and that he, that he has you know, that self-authenticating authority. And so there's nothing, I would say there's nothing irrational internally to the Christian who believes those things as you've laid it out. Now, the question of whether or not that's persuasive to an outsider and how that relates to an outsider is a little bit of a different story. So uh, I think that would be the thing that we just need to be aware of as we're communicating with people who disagree with us 
is, okay, here's in part why it's not persuasive, even though it's not irrational for you to hold it. Yeah. So in chapter seven, Mitch starts to clarify here what he has been arguing. And he says, he's, he's not arguing that God exists. He's responding to the objection that belief in God is irrational, not that it's false. And I think this is maybe where I'd have to go back and like, listen to our previous episodes, but this is, it's possible, um, that we've conflated what he's trying to do or, or tried to ask him to do more than he's attempting to do. Cause he does make this distinction and say, whoa, 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 I'm not, I haven't been trying to argue that, you know, uh, God exists with certainty, you know, mm-hmm. or, or even denying this objection that belief in God is true or false. He's just saying, I'm, I'm only answering this objection that belief in God is irrational. And he's kind of proven that by just saying, well, all beliefs that we have, we all um, believe something by faith based on testimony, and and this applies to you too. So, what what were your kind of big takeaways from chapter seven? And what did you think about? Um, he has this conversation between you know Richard and Al, yeah. <laughs> Alvin. <laughs> well, the, the thing it was, it was kind of funny as I was listening or reading this section, um, I, I could almost feel like presuppositionalists like gnashing their teeth at not arriving at certainty. You know what I mean? Oh, no, not certain. Why, why won't he give us certainty? And, and, and it's kind of interesting because um, from, even from a communication standpoint, uh, just thinking about it, I, I listened to uh, a William Lane Craig debate with a guy, against a guy named Alex Rosenberg, and the debate was his belief in God reasonable. And by that measurement, and William Lane Craig would often dodge the specifics of Christianity, but what, you had to leave that debate saying William Lane Craig made belief in God reasonable. You know what I mean? Like d- just f- from, you know, we could debate of how everybody in here is using that word. Um, but the idea of the way William Lane Craig laid out his syllogisms and the way that Alex Rosenberg responded, Rosenberg showed n- in no way, shape or form why anything Craig said was unreasonable. You know what I mean? And, and, so, and, and so in some ways for a lot of people, um, and part of this is going to be personality. This is going to be very good and persuasive. It kind of takes a little bit of an onus off of you. You don't have to have this certainty and people who wrestle with even just, even if certainty is like a psychological quality that you have, uh, that you're seeking to possess and you don't have it. Um, the, for some people is actually going to be a pretty liberating chapter where some people are going to be frustrated that no, I, I need certainty. If I don't have it, I'm almost a wash other people. Their disposition is going to be such that, as they read this, like, okay, that resonates with me. That just makes sense. I don't have this complete psychological certainty, but it's completely reasonable to believe those things. Um, so as I was reading it in that first section, particularly with, uh, uh, as he kind of laid that thing out and got into the, uh, if the Christian epistemic story is true, then belief in God can be rational, even apart from evidence. Um, I do think for certain personalities, it's going to be a very liberating concept. Yeah, he has this quote um, in here. Uh, this is on page 63. I, I just, I just kind of like this sentence where he says, there are surely all sorts of things that exist for which we have no evidence. And I think that just bears reflecting on in with, with unbelievers because they have, people tend to have a double standard when it comes to judging Christianity, when, when they put it in the, in the court and they want to say, yeah, show me evidence. It was funny. I, I was just on Twitter a few hours ago, and I saw that it's like 
Jesus Christ is King or there, there's some like Christ is Lord trending. And I was like, Oh, I wonder what this is about. Like, how did this happen? And it's funny. I, I just, I just happened to click on one person's like, you know, uh, hashtag on it, just a very simple, like Bible verse. And then someone responds with no evidence checkmate. <laughs> and then, and then the person below them is like, there's lots of good evidence. And then, then I was like, oh, and it was just like a perfect example of kind of what we're talking about here is they think that there's no evidence for this. Therefore, the whole thing is not worth believing. But, you know, there are tons of things that exist, which we have no evidence for. And I think that's what I, I that's one of the things I have found fruitful doing philosophy or just thinking about epistemology and, and doing these thought experiments where it's like we said in another one, you know, how do I know that I, uh, that China exists or how do I know that I'm even in Moscow, Idaho? That's the example uh, Mitch gives earlier in the book. And you start to realize, yeah, there's so, I could come up with all sorts of alternative scenarios to explain what I'm experiencing. And just as I could feel like uh, I have 100% absolute certainty that I am talking to Keith Darrell right now, someone could come up, like there's an endless infinite amount of possible scenarios that could be thrown at me that would say, oh, Keith actually uh, recorded this video and he has Uh foreknowledge and he was able to just trick me. Really, he's like surfing right now somewhere. Uh But but we would say, that's just not very believable. That's not a defeater for my belief. So I I really like that sentence. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, and, uh, you know, I don't have a, man, I really hate reading off the computer because I don't have the pages marked. Um, there's gotta be a better way, but he would just say things where he's like, you know, it's, there's no reason to question why it's snowing. There's no reason to question that I'm holding a book in my hand. And, you know, if you want to deal with Joe's skeptic who wants to get in those things and even just very practically, like, just have a good day. You know what I mean? Like if, if the person wants to go that route, um, feel comfortable. I, you know, when I was in college, I would have felt like, no, I have to argue with this guy and, and get him. And nowadays I'm so much more content with, all right, have a good day. Because yeah, like that strand of things, like if someone really wants to question our conversation or question whether or not I'm holding a pen or the book, um, or even if you think of a little boy hearing his dad's voice, um, that little kid can't justify in any way, shape or form why he's arrived at the conclusion that he does. He just hears his dad's voice and says, daddy. And so I, I think that's a pretty, but it, there's nothing unreasonable what that little boy is doing. So um, I, I think if we keep that in mind, it actually freezes up in many conversations. And uh, even, yeah, again, read these chapters. It's just the way you go about your day. Like um, you just get the feel, even as, you know, I always think of riding a bike. I just have a feel for it. I, I, I don't think I could state in a proposition how to ride a bike. I mean, you get on, you pedal. And so there are certain things that you, and I think much of our epistemology is actually that way. And what I've realized this is intertwined with my reading of Alex Rosenberg. Alex Rosenberg says scientific knowledge, uh, we have no knowledge through stories. Any knowledge that we have is basically like the scientific, quantifiable, sort of measurable sort of thing. And if you don't have that in a strict scientific lab sort of way, you actually don't have knowledge of the world. Whereas we as Christians come along with like, no, it's all about, you know, predominantly about story. And so even that metaphysical thing is tied into how these and so when they were like give us evidence and they want to measure way and quantify and don't give us your stories well that's a you know that's a whole different way of approaching the world and i would say in many ways it becomes self-stultifying if uh if just go read alex rosenberg or listen to debate with william Clayton craig so anyway that, that's uh 
I, I've liked what he's done here. And I, I, I think it's very, in a poor expression, very commonsensical. Yeah. I just finished today this book. Uh, one of the best books I, I've probably ever read, uh, Planet Narnia by Michael Ward. And it's a work of literary criticism that gets into what Lewis, C.S. Lewis was doing with the Narnia Chronicles. And C.S. Lewis's whole project was militating against what you just described with Rosenberg, where stories, uh, you know, these myths can't give us true meaning. And he really has this uh, Rosenberg or these people that Lewis is militating against have a disenchanted view of the cosmos of even what truth is. And uh, this is maybe more evident if you uh, ever read uh, C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. There's just a really fascinating progression there on um, kind of the enchanted world versus the disenchanted world. And what did Lewis do? He, he argues, he wrote Miss, Mere Christianity, he wrote Miracles, but he also wrote stories. And we, find, we often find that stories are the way that truth actually kind of bypasses all of these questions that we're wrestling through in philosophy. And we come to arrive at truth with in some ways greater certainty than if you show them the the calculations. If I show you the math of the incarnation, well, who can do that? How how can two natures be in one person or how can God be both three in one? And I think one of the the fascinating things, if you are a Christian, is you have this, this book that God wrote and this is how God chose to reveal himself. Right, in, in creation, the book of nature, but also with these mainly stories, poetry, um, all sorts of stuff. And I think the wonder of scripture has just become more wonderful to me as I've contemplated some of these philosophical questions and then, and then gone back and say, no, I'm not trying to defend the faith right now. I'm just trying to read my Bible. But it's amazing that this, that this book I'm holding is the thing that God wanted to use to, to change the world. This story that I'm reading right now fills the imagination. And uh, I think a lot of the, the effort that we need to do as evangelists is going after the imagination with a better story, with a persuasive argument, and not just giving them the logic chops, but in fleshing that in, in, with illustrations, analogies, stories that are persuasive. That's what a good teacher does. They give you an analogy. I think that's where we have to work hard as evangelists, preachers, apologists to do that. Yeah. And you're 100% right. And what's interesting is, is, you know, there's so much there we could interact on, but I, 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 thinking of even, you think of broadly speaking, American evangelicalism and reformed faith in particular, where we have a tendency, and I don't even think we necessarily read it really, really well, uh, but we have a tendency to hang out in Romans rather than the Gospels, you know what I mean? And we, and we kind of think Romans is a foundation of kind of systematic theology, and we're not always thinking in terms of biblical theology. And sometimes when you bring up biblical theology to certain reform circles, it's kind of like a little bit of an allergic reaction to it, because, oh, no, our systematics need to... But that systematic, in a way, and I don't, I don't want to overstate the case, somewhat arose in the context of the Enlightenment, of how we end up knowing the world and, you know, hear the verses about the Holy Spirit, and they're often pulled out of a, of a context of what the narrative of what's going on here. And it's just kind of interesting as you uh, said all that. And I would say one of the places I think I fail when I'm on campus is I have a tendency to be like, if I can just rationally show this rather than tell a good story. And what's interesting, even when I'm out there, the, the, one of the hard parts is 
Joe Atheist um, wants to be like, you're just telling stories, you know what I mean? And he wants to act like I'm failing in my, uh, in somehow presenting my case, I'm telling a story, but I got to just ignore that. Like, no, I am telling the story. And I, I, as you were talking, I also thought of a little bit the rise of Jordan Peterson, um, because he would kind of tell a story. He would take those archetypal stories and constantly play to, place us in those archetypal stories. And I think part of his big appeal to a lot of people was placing people in a context where their life is meaningful because it's part of a story rather than just, just these stochastic heartbeats that aren't really connected in any way other than from something that's quantifiable and qualifiable. So um, I, I think we do have to regroup and, and capture kind of the story aspect of things. And for so long, myself included, I think of being in the 90s and if a preacher told too many stories, I don't want stories. You know what I mean? It's just like, I want, just give me, just give me Bible. I want stories. Well, the Bible's full of stories. You know what I mean? And I was just yeah. misreading the Bible and I was ignoring first Kings and second Kings. It was all stories. You know what I mean? Give me, give me the theology. And, uh, and, and so anyway, the, the, we, we've been influenced by the Alex Rosenberg's, maybe not to that extreme, but that thinking permeates American culture. And so even as evangelicals, we've been influenced by that. And I do think we're better off seeking to reshape the culture around the story of what God says rather than bowing to kind of that enlightenment ideal. Yeah. Well, I'll close with just a few book recommendations for you guys. If you want some good examples of arguing, I think persuasively, not uh, with with logic, but logic that's on fire, um, I would highly recommend uh, checking out N.D. Wilson's book, Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl. Then he also wrote a sequel to that called Death by Living. And there's actually a little um, kind of DVD or video I'm, I'm sure you can find if you go to canonpress.com or elsewhere. I think actually it was a different publisher who did um, notes from the tilt world, but look it up. And I think he does a good job of using story to talk about things like the problem of evil. He, he addresses it as it's not a logical problem. It's an emotional problem. And it, and he gives uh, what I think is a good emotional answer. And I think this we need to be able to have all of sorry. these. Sorry, what's that in? I'm sorry, what was that in? Uh, notes from the tilt world Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and he tells, he's a gr- great storyteller. And I find that that is often uh, a tool that I want to go to more frequently when I'm with people is how can I capture um, a persuasive argument in a story and give that to my family or give that to an unbeliever. Um, and then also, if you want to find uh, Doug Wilson's book, Persuasions, I think it's actually one of the, I think it might be the very first book he wrote. And it's a very short book. And it's just these little kind of funny uh, ways of Doug interacting with unbelievers, kind of these uh, uh, hypothetical conversations. So that'd be another one to go to. So uh, Keith, where can people find you if they want to find you? If you want to find me, Facebook, Keith Darrell. I currently look like Tom Selleck, so I need to update my uh, Facebook profile. Uh, you can go there, Keith Darrell on the Facebook, Campus Evangel on Twitter, Campus Preacher on Instagram, and then CampusPreacher.com is my website. And Lord willing, this summer, we're going to update that thing and get a little more outward focusing. Uh, so yeah, Campus Preacher. I, I try to, I'm trying to get everything Campus Preacher, but CampusPreacher.com, Campus Preacher on Instagram, Keith Darrell on Facebook. You heard it. Campus Preacher trademark, pen, trademark pending. All right. Until, until next Friday, we'll see you later. Peace. Bye.